All right, open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. If you have an electronic device, uh, find John chapter 5 on one of the 300 Bibles you probably have downloaded. John chapter 5, verses 15 through 29 is our text this morning. The topic, Jesus stuns the Jewish religious authorities when he says that he and his father have been uh, working together on the Sabbath. The title of our message, Sabbath Day's All Right for Working, Get a Little Healing In. <laughs> father, thank you so much for your word. As we gather around it, Lord, and hear it read, commented upon, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would take the words you uh, had John put down and the words I speak, Lord, and, and make them meaningful to each and every heart. As always, Lord, as Gino prayed earlier, we care about the unsaved that are in our midst. We know, Lord, that eternal life is within their grasp, that if they would just believe in the Son, they would have that life. We pray that you would do a supernatural work in the lives of anyone here, Lord, that's not born again that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come and that they would run to Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I am Iron Man. Tony Stark introduced himself with those iconic words. I am Groot. Can mean anything. But when you first meet Groot, he's introducing himself. We are Venom is a creative twist on self-introductions. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Gene has way too much invested in Marvel, you know, in Marvel movies. The top two film self-introductions on my list would be The Name is Bond. Veteran actor Michael Keaton ad-libbed the classic line, I'm Batman. Jesus introduced himself to the Jewish religious authorities as God. He did it indirectly, but matter-of-factly, he said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And the Jewish religious authorities understood that he was, quote, making himself equal with God. Jesus invites us to look back and then ahead to see the work he and God the Father are accomplishing. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus takes you back to he and his father at creation. And number two, Jesus takes you ahead to he and his father at the consummation. Let's go back to creation with the Lord in verses 15 through 18. Ken Ham, founder of Answers in Genesis, likes to ask, were you there about God's creation? Then he says something like, no, we weren't there, but we know someone who was there, someone who cannot lie, who knows everything and has always existed. And this one has revealed to us what happened in the past in his history book called the Bible. The Jewish religious authorities accused Jesus of doing work on the Sabbath. He responded that he and his father have always worked on the Sabbath and they still do. And so we pick it up in verse 15, overlapping from our study last week. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. In the previous verses, 
The man was among a multitude hoping to be healed at the pool of Bethesda. The sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed believed that when the water in the pool stirred, the first one in would be healed. Jesus singled out this man, infirm for 38 years. He commanded him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Believing, he did precisely that. And then in verse 16, incredibly, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. The religious authorities ignored the inexpressible joy of the healing and were upset because carrying bedding was prohibited work on the Sabbath. Mind you, it wasn't prohibited in the scriptures. It was prohibited by their extra-biblical uh, rules and regulations. These guys did not know how to have joy in the Lord. They, and worse than that, they robbed everyone else of joy. I can't imagine being this poor guy. 38 years of infirmity. Last week we talked about what's he even doing there? He can't get to the water at all unless somebody throws him in. And yet he's there because it's his last fleeting hope. And then all of a sudden he can walk. He doesn't have any atrophy. He doesn't have to go to physical therapy. He picks up his bed, which is the only thing he owns. And you're thinking that everybody is going to go crazy with joy. And then these religious guys come along with their big black hats. And they say, hmm, I smell a Sabbath breaking over here. It's incredible. Christians ought to be joyous, right? We believe in the Lord. The, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, the Apostle Peter said that you ought to experience and express. He said joy unspeakable and full of glory. Each will express it differently, but believers have that joy, 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 joy. I've been thinking about doing a message that's a musical. <laughs> See, I mean, wouldn't that be great? I could say that and then we could break into song. We could have a choir come in behind, you know. And then get back into the message. Have you seen that? Has that been, has that been done before? I'm, I'm going to work on it. They don't think I'm serious. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Answered means that they confronted Jesus. He was answering their accusation about green lighting work on the Sabbath. The message version reads, my father is working straight through, even on the Sabbath, so am I. Have you ever thought about God working on the Sabbath? And we get the Sabbath from Genesis where it says on the seventh day God rested. And then there's all of this biblical argumentation about Christians and the Sabbath and Israel and the Sabbath and what we can and can't do on the Sabbath and do we need to keep the Sabbath. But nobody ever just gets up and says, hey, I have something to share. God works on the Sabbath, and Jesus works on the Sabbath. And so whatever you're talking about has to fit into that, into those parameters. If he doesn't work on the Sabbath, why does the world keep on spinning? Why does the sea rush to shore? That's our second musical number, right? Also from a Marvel movie. Anyway, a terrible Marvel movie, but anyway. Seriously, who relieves God to hold the universe together. Does Atlas get the tap? You go ahead and rest. 
put the world on my shoulders. Well, what about the rest of the universe? So the rabbis get around this by saying, well, it's not work for God to sustain what he created. It seems like it would be a lot more work if you ask me, especially now with sin in the mix. Philo of Alexandria, church father, writes, Moses does not give the name of rest to mere inactivity. God never ceases to work all that is best and beautiful. God's rest is a working with absolute ease, without toil, and without suffering. Maybe that's the whole spirit of the Sabbath, right? Whatever is best and beautiful. And so, you know, when this guy picks up his mat, is that best and beautiful? Or should he just lay there for another 12 or 15 hours because it's the Sabbath? Uh, It's crazy how we can get super legalistic about things and, and, and not understand the heart of God and what God would have for his children. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They were already seeking ways to kill Jesus and now they doubled down. The essential confession of faith for Israelites is found in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. It begins, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would repeat this every morning and every evening, teaching it to their children. You might therefore expect the religious authorities to be confused that God is one, but more than one. In fact, Don Stewart writes, the doctrine of the Trinity is not plainly revealed in the Old Testament. Without the teaching of the New Testament, we would not be aware of this truth. There are seeds of the Trinity, obviously, in the Old Testament, but it is revealed to us plainly in the New. You ever heard the word Godhead or read that in a commentary? Theologians sometimes use that term to refer to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three divine persons in one God. In its simplest form, here's a a doctrinal declaration. We believe that the one God eternally exists in three persons— the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God, co-equal and co-eternal, having precisely the same nature and attributes, and worthy of precisely the same worship, confidence, and obedience. We believe it because the Bible teaches it. Many false teachings arise at just this point. It was proposed in the second century A.D. that God was one person instead of three, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were different modes of the same divine person. In other words, the Father became the Son, and then the Son becomes the Holy Spirit. They switch back and forth. This heresy continues today in oneness Pentecostalism and other groups that deny the Trinity. Maybe you've tried to explain the Godhead by using the three forms of water. Water can be liquid, it can be steam, or it can be ice but it remains water, three in one. Excellent example of modalism because it's only one thing at a time. It changes from ice to water to steam, right? Uh, And so quit using that illustration. In fact, don't use any illustrations about the Trinity. There aren't any good ones that I've ever come across, Uh, but there's a lot of great scripture that proves that God is three in one. We can only wonder how many Sabbaths Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden before they disobeyed God. I'm hoping it was a while. 
I mean, did they sin immediately or did it take a while? Let's, let's give them some Sabbaths. Their sin was met with God's promise to redeem and restore both them and creation. The Father and Jesus constantly worked to keep that promise. It began at once with the revelation that God would come to earth as the seed of a woman. He would add humanity to his deity and walk among us. Their work is chronicled progressively in the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the promised redemption and restoration is providentially furthered by Jesus working with his Father. Lots of stories, lots of episodes and events and things that happen, but all of them contribute to the work of God the Father and Jesus together in order to redeem lost mankind and restore creation. And so this is the work Jesus is talking about. And it is a best and beautiful work, God's desire to see men saved. Secondly, Jesus takes you ahead to he and his father at the consummation. Star-Lord told the other guardians of the galaxy he had 12% of a plan. The only good thing that could be said was, I am Groot, which meant it was better than 11% of a plan. The way things are going, non-believers might doubt God has even 12% of a plan. We know he has 100% of a plan. The remaining verses look ahead to the future, past our own time, to where we read in verse 28, all who are in the graves hearing Jesus' voice, to the final uh, day of judgment. So verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus is equal with God the father. Jesus is God. How did that play out during his incarnation when he added humanity to his deity? Well, in his first coming as the God-man, Jesus never once acted independently of his father. He determined to do nothing of himself, nothing independently. The Apostle Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He didn't hang on to his equality, but he trusted the Father. They never had an argument about what should be done. Jesus was content to be dependent on the Father's judgment. When he said the son can do nothing of himself, it is not to say he was any less than God, but that he voluntarily subordinated himself to his father for the sake of their plan. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Warren Wiersbe writes, We usually think of the Father's love for the lost world as in John 3.16, but we must also remember the Father's love for his own dear Son. Now, how does that work out for us? Well, if you are ever in doubt about God's love for you or his plans for you or just his general thinking about you, then think about the Father's love for his Son. There's a scripture that we're aware of that says he spared not his Son for you. And so the father loves the son so much. Can you, can you imagine a greater, deeper, stronger love than that of God the Father for his son? And yet he loved you so much. Not just you plural, but you personally so much 
that he gave his son. Jesus, the only way for Gene to be saved is for you to die on the cross and take his sin upon yourself. And then we can declare him righteous. We can give him your righteousness. He hasn't earned it. He never could. But we can declare him righteous because you've paid the penalty for his sin. That's how much God loves. He loves you as much as he loves his son, and that's a whole lot. More wondrous works than the healing of an infirm man were coming. Jesus seems genuinely excited that his father is going to show him greater works. He's saying, hey, you guys think this is something? Wait until you see what we have in store for you. I don't even know about some of it in my humanity. I'm waiting for it to be revealed. We ought to be excited to discover things in our daily walk with the Lord. I mean, at least think in the morning, first thing or at night, whenever you get up and go to work or get up to do whatever you're going to do when you're up, you know, add to your prayers, Lord, show me something. Show me something that I can marvel at. Is geocaching still a thing? Anybody here geocache? It's, it's, I tried it. <laughs> Couldn't find anything. I ended up down off of Hanford Armona Road at the old, uh, not the old, but the county fire station in a ditch. Uh, so I gave up geocaching. But it's where you, it's like a treasure hunt using GPS where you go and find things that people have hidden. Uh, sitting in my office here one day years ago and there was a guy kind of hovering around the yard and I go, can, can I, we get a lot of, you know, crazy people here. And so I went out and I said, hey, can, can I help you? And he explained to me what he was doing, and it turned out the geocache was stuck by a magnet under our mailbox. And uh, I thought, huh, that's when I thought I'd try it, and uh, a day later I gave it up. So anyway, <laughs> that you may marvel. We're talking about a man uh, who had an infirmity for 38 years. But we can marvel at little things, can't you? In fact, there's more little things to marvel at than these big things in our lives. I marvel at many things. I was just thinking in terms of our fellowship, Calvary Chapel of Hanford, and you know the perspective I have on that over there is just the marvel of coming here and being here. And sometimes I think you know, people. One of the things that I get most excited about uh, is that people who were here. I mean, we've been here what thirty some odd years now. I can't do the math, but. I think it's 35 or 36, people who were here and who've left for one reason or another, not, not acrimoniously, but they've left, and then they come back. And, and that's, that, I, I marvel at that because they must think that your fellowship is, is something to be cherished and to, to love and, and that they're safe and happy and they can learn about Jesus. And so there's a lot that we can marvel at. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus was letting them know that he was going to raise people from the dead. Not only that, he was going to give life by raising people from the dead never to die again. We'll see that in just a minute. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Why mention judgment? Well, Jesus is looking ahead to the end of the ages. His accusers don't have this big picture view that he does. We need to have a big picture worldview. 
We're playing a long game and we're enabled to endure. Uh, and we know the future. Uh, God has given us everything we need to know about the future in order for us to put the present in perspective. Non-believers think God the Father is a wrathful, short-fused, judgmental deity who can't wait to rain fire upon earth. They understand Jesus to be a kinder, gentler version of God who went around saying, judge not, judge not, can we all just get along, that kind of thing. Check Jesus out in the Revelation. Jesus takes the seven-sealed scroll from his Father's hand. He's the only one who qualifies to do it in the entire universe for all of time because of what he did, becoming a man and dying on the cross. And then Jesus is the person who opens it one seal at a time to pour out the wrath of God upon the earth. It's his judgment. Remember, though, in the Revelation when we studied it not too long ago, we called it the grace of wrath because through that wrath he was continually calling men to himself warning them about what was coming and what was to come, uh, sending, you know, 144,000, two witnesses, angels, to minister the gospel so that they would be saved. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. We look back to creation and noted the fall of man, the Godhead's 100% plan to redeem and restore was for God to come in human flesh. God must become flesh and die in order to pay the penalty of sin for mankind. Whosoever, whoever, anyone who believes will receive everlasting life. Believing is the one thing we can do that isn't work. We don't save ourselves. It's all 100% of grace. But we believe, and that is not a work, it is a response as God frees our will to decide. Verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. This is get, getting to be quite a prophecy talk. The hour is coming, sounds a lot like the rapture of the church, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Talking about the resurrections is like giving CPR. Once you start, you can't stop. You're obligated to keep going. You notice I said resurrections, plural. The first thing to grasp is that there is not one general resurrection of believers and non-believers at the end of the age. There are a series of resurrections. The Bible describes two categories of resurrections called, uh, simply enough, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is the permanent raising from the dead for believers in Jesus Christ we could also call it the resurrection of the righteous. Second resurrection is the permanent raising from the dead for non-believers. You could also call it the resurrection of the wicked. Here's what throws people. If you can get past this, it all falls into place. The first resurrection doesn't occur all at once. Maybe quit calling it first and just call it the resurrection of the righteous. It started with Jesus and it will conclude just before the new heavens and the new earth are created. Here's what I mean. 
Jesus was the first person to be raised never to die again. There would be no resurrections if he did not raise from the dead. Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have died, meaning he rose from the dead and then others will rise from the dead to eternal life after him. There's an interesting passage in Matthew 27 where there are some resurrections. It says graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. And so Jesus rose from the dead and then a handful of saints rose from the dead and they went into town and said, hey, remember me? I died 20 years ago. I'm in my resurrection body. And then Jesus took them to heaven. Uh, now some commentators say, well, maybe they came back to life, but, but not in a resurrection sense. They just rose like Lazarus. But that's weird. So Jesus rises from the dead in his glorified body, proving that he is the Lord. And then these people rise up to die again. That's a bad deal. And so this is a token after Jesus is the first. It's a token of things to come. You see, wow, this is, Jesus isn't the only one. There will be other resurrections. And so that's what that is. Then the next resurrection of believers is the resurrection and rapture of the church. Hasn't happened yet, but it's imminent. We talk about that all the time. So Jesus, and then this token, and now the church age, we're waiting for the Lord to return to resurrect the dead in Christ and raise uh, them and, and rapture us. Then the Old Testament saints are in heaven, but they've not received their resurrection bodies. Daniel chapter 12 tells us their resurrection occurs at the end of the great tribulation. Tribulation saints, many millions of people will be saved during the great tribulation. They will be resurrected just before the thousand-year kingdom of earth be, on earth begins. And then there will be believers who live to the end of the thousand years in their human bodies who will need to be raised from the dead for their stay in eternity. Those six events are the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, and when it concludes, all the believers from all of time have been raised from the dead and are in glorified heavenly bodies. For all non-believers from all of time to be absent from their body at death is to be present in Hades. Their resurrection is the second resurrection. The resurrection of the wicked does occur all at once, and it's described in some detail in chapter 20 of the Revelation. Hades and death and the ocean give up their dead. The wicked dead are raised, given a resurrection body, only to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal conscious torment. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man 88 times in the New Testament. It is his title for himself. He often calls himself the Son of Man. Others in the Bible are called a Son of Man. I think Ezekiel was many times in his prophecy. Jesus is the unique the Son of Man. Where does that title come from? It comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel said he saw a person receive glory, worship, and an everlasting kingdom who was the Messiah. And he called that person in his vision, the son of man. And so when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he is claiming to be that character, that Messiah from the Old Testament. 
Verse 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, just because it talks about those two resurrections in one verse, it doesn't mean they occur at the same time because they don't. They occur in the stages that I told you. And a lot of people, once you get that, it clears up a lot of things for you, especially in the area of prophecy, when you understand this series of resurrections. Verse 29 has confused some over what appears to be the significant role of works. Later on in the gospel, Jesus will be asked what must be done to do the works God requires. His wonderful answer, the work of God is to believe in the one who sent me. And so again, I reinforce, believing is not a work. Uh, It is just believing. Believers go on to discover good works that Jesus has for them. We don't do them to maintain salvation, but to delight our Heavenly Father. Don't you want to bring delight to your Heavenly Father? If you're a parent, your kids bring you little gifts, worthless gifts, stupid gifts. I mean, in and of themselves, you know. The best thing I got this Christmas was a little card from Nora, my little granddaughter. And I, could, I couldn't read it. Uh, no one could read it. I mean, it was just, but I said, well, read it to me. And she did, and it was just so sweet. I mean, you know, it, it was the greatest thing. Sometimes I'm in a thrift store. You've seen this. You're looking at stuff. I'm looking for coffee devices, you know. You'd be surprised how many weird coffee makers there are. I found a Black & Decker microwave espresso maker and too bad I didn't have the instruction I almost blew myself up trying to make espresso with it one time but anyway um, so I'm I, thrift store, every now and then in the thrift store you'll find one of those plaster of Paris hands the little kid hands Chuck it's sad I remember when Chuck was this big and he handed somebody this little thing they just said ah, get away from here you stupid kid Or maybe they did, and that's your problem. But anyway, it's sad. I mean, God's not like that, right? I mean, it's like, who cares? There's your hand. I see your actual hand. I don't need the handprint. Man, who buys that anyway? Why give it to the thrift store? Just junk it so I don't have to get emotional about it, right? (laughs) It's ridiculous. You know, if somebody gives that to you, just, man. (sighs) But you love that. And so the Lord, he, he... we work for him, and yeah, what we hand him is a handprint thing, and, and you know, it's, but he loves it. He's, if God, you know, has a trophy chest for each of you, he's got all this kind of weird stuff that you've done, and oh, you once shared with this guy, and over here you gave money to this guy, and you, you gave me a drink of water here and stuff. It's, it's, it's precious. Non-believers, it says, continue to do evil. The word evil there translates to worthless things. I've had the privilege of officiating at many grave sites and memorial services over the years. It's another marvel, by the way. I count it as a marvel because it's a, it is really a privilege. Sad when every indication is that the deceased did not receive Jesus Christ ever in his life or her life. Well-wishers who give eulogies struggle to find the things that would be considered worthwhile. I remember one where they had an open mic People could come up and share, and, and people are, they struggle, you know, what should I say? And so finally, uh, or not finally, but at one point, somebody got up and said, well, you know, he had the best yard in, in the whole block. And everybody, yeah, yeah. And then at one after another, five or six people came up and said, yeah, 
I always knew when to fertilize my lawn because he was fertilizing his lawn. Well, he helped me with my azaleas, you know, and, and, and it went on like that. And I'm telling you, it was really, really sad. Don't you hope that your life comes to more than watering your lawn and having the best yard on the block? I mean, it's just the epitome of, of, of sadness. There's nothing worse than a funeral for a non-believer. It's just the hopelessness of it is incredible. It was worthless. This passage reads like a father-son outing. The father loves his son, and the son is bursting with joy and excitement on what they will accomplish together. What are we going to do today, Dad? We're going to heal somebody. We're going to raise the dead. We're going to go outside Jerusalem and talk to a Gentile. What's going to happen today? Jesus was the unique son of God. When you are born again, behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's our final song that we'd end our musical, right? Behold what manner of love the father. And then the girls come in, right? Let's do it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold. All right. I think it'd be groovy. Speaking of the 60s. You and I are on a long outing with God. Your God cash will have blessings and buffetings. Either way, you can be bursting with joy and excitement for what Jesus will accomplish in you and through you as you await the rapture. The Lord has 100% of a plan for you.